Can everyone hear me okay? That's good. All right. Um, so as Caleb just set us up for the day, I want to use this time in our first talk to try to make you as parents more aware of the nature and the extent of harms online today for our kids. And so Caleb's first point about needing wisdom, I think to be able to develop that wisdom, we also first need to have knowledge of everything that is possibly out there that our kids may be coming across. I think as parents, we want to be more prepared than our children are. Like we should be more aware of what they could face. And, and so that's what I'm hoping to do in my talk this morning. So we need to kind of know exactly what they are coming across um, in order to effectively be able to protect our kids. And so there's just a few kind of key things I want to say up front that I fear parents don't fully realize when it comes to kids and social media and smartphones today. The first is that these social media companies and their apps are actively trying to addict our children. So these are not neutral products. They don't have our children's best interests at heart. They're truly trying to harvest our kids' attention and data for profit. And so we just need to have that framework in place when we're trying to understand social media apps to know that the, the companies themselves are really out to try to addict our kids. The second thing is that social media, ironically, really isn't social anymore. So if you grew up <laughs> like I was in the generation when Facebook came out in high school and it was very social, you saw what your friends were posting and you would post what you were doing that afternoon and it was a way to stay in touch with people, it was very social. However, these apps now today with their algorithms are really full of outside voices and content from complete strangers. So it's no longer your kids are just seeing what their friends are doing. They're actually watching the content that their friends are watching who are often complete strangers. You probably have heard the term influencers. Um, and these are just these outside uh, kind of for-profit um, influencers trying to gain our children's attention and influence them. And so. Um, that's kind of my second point, is that the social networks themselves aren't, in fact, social. They're really filled with outside content, and a lot of that is sensational and inappropriate content for children, and the platforms are doing little to nothing to remove that. And then the last thing I want to just emphasize is that a child's experience of social media is very different than an adult's. And so I think sometimes when we are on these apps and using them, what we might be seeing in our feeds, we think, oh, well, this, this isn't really that harmful for kids. But the way that the algorithms are operating and the way that children's brains develop make a child's experience on social media very different than an adult's. And I'll explain that further in my talk. So the um, threats I want to explain are really twofold. And so the first part I want to unpack is that the platforms themselves are designed to be extremely addictive. And so I want to explain exactly how they're working to try to addict our kids and then the effect that that is having on children's mental health and development, especially um, teenage girls. So the business model of these social media companies is to extract users' time, attention, and data and then sell that to advertisers. So the more time that you spend on their platform, the more ads they are able to sell. 
And the younger that they can get someone hooked on their platform, the longer they're going to be able to profit off that user over his or her lifetime. So it's not a, use, it's not a neutral product that the user is in control of. The companies are really determining what your experience is, and they're seeking to manipulate and control our behavior by making it addictive. And so the truth is actually that we are the product. I think a lot of times we think, oh, social media is free. It doesn't cost me anything to sign up for an account. Um, but you're actually paying with your time, your attention, and your data. So the user is really the product because it's, it's essentially a two-sided market, and the way that they're making their profit is through digital advertising. And so you probably even notice over time if you're on these apps, you're like, wow, this website really knows me. They're like, they're trying to sell me ads for this thing, and how did they know that I really like coffee? Like, this is interesting. I'm getting all these ads for coffee products. So that's all intentional. It's the algorithms. They extract your data, your time. They figure out what you like, and then they sell that information to advertisers. So they're not using us, or sorry, we are not using their product, but rather they are using us. And so as I explained, algorithms is really how social media apps work today, which is how they sort content into a user's feed. So with so much content available online today, it's infinite. It's a way that social media networks are prioritizing the content that they think you, the user, will be most interested in and will like based on these you know, data they're extracting on a number of factors. So they really learn you over time and what accounts you follow, what kinds of posts and videos that you comment on or share or like, even things like how long you watched a video, how long you lingered on a post for versus other things you scrolled right past. And so algorithms perfect for success over time. And so in the case of social media, their definition of success is what's going to keep you engaged as long as possible. And so that's what it's perfecting for over time. And so this is my point that they're actively trying to addict all of us, but especially our kids, with their algorithms over time. And then the platform can sell more ads and make more profits off of you. And so the sad reality is that these companies are in what we call a race to the bottom. They are trying to hook kids younger and younger because they know that if they're able to get your children onto their platform, they're going to be able to profit off of them and make more profit off of that person over their lifetime. Um, it's a business term to say basically like the kind of net value of a user, the kind of long-term profit, the business model shows that the younger you can get someone to start using their product, the more likely they are to use it the rest of their life. And so they really are not concerned that underage kids are getting on their platforms. The de facto age for social media is 13. It's based on a law that says that above 13, these companies can collect data off of your children without parental consent. So social media has set the age as 13, but we know that 9 to 12-year-olds um, are getting on, and, and they're not actively trying to keep kids off. And so without these kind of robust age verification processes in place, the kind of age for social media has really grown younger and younger. And anecdotally, I hear from parents, like, it's starting in fourth grade, it's fifth grade. My kids' friends are getting on social media. I'm starting to hear them asking me if they can make an account. Um, and so that is just the kind of backdrop I wanted us to be aware of, is how the companies are actively trying to addict our kids to just understand that there is an agenda that um, is being pushed. And so they're not neutral products. 
The second thing I wanted to explain is that the experience of a child on social media is very different than that of an adult. And so the ways that they are trying to addict our kids is actually re rewiring children's brains. So both child and adults alike, we have dopamine responses to social media that encourage us to stay on, engaged on the platform. Um, someone likes our post or you know comments on our photo, we get a little dopamine hit that's like, oh, I like that. That's a, it, and that's the way our brains are wired um, to respond to what they call social rewards. But that effect is far more powerful for minors. So between the ages of 10 and 12, the receptors in your brain for the happy hormones of oxytocin and dopamine are multiplying. And so this makes preteens extra sensitive to attention and admiration from others. And this is a good thing in general. It helps kids to be incentivized by social rewards. It helps their social development, how they engage with others. But these receptors are now being hijacked by social media because social media is providing immediate rewards instantly over and over and over and over again in the form of a dopamine release every time you post or get a notification from your app. So this constant kind of barrage of these shallow rewards rewires your brain to want more, which causes this addiction. So dopamine is like an addictive drug. We start to crave more and more stimulation to feel that little ping of pleasure. And so the results over time is that this dopamine overload actually blocks our brain's serotonin receptors. Sorry, I'm getting very technical. It's a lot of neuroscience. But it's important to understand how this, how this affects our kids' brains. So, Serotonin is what, we, what is released and what the brain receptor receives when we've done something really hard and we experience a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. So like you climbed a really tall mountain, you get to the top and you see that view. Your brain releases serotonin. And this is, they call it like the happiness hormone. Like serotonin is really responsible for our mood, our happiness. It helps regulate sleep. It does all these really good things in our brain. Well, the dopamine overload actually blocks the serotonin receptors. And what that does is it actually rewires our brains and it affects our ability to actually experience real fulfillment. And so this kind of, the social media is really neutering a generation of kids from being able to experience true fulfillment and happiness. Um, and so they're becoming wired for novelty and titillation rather than the true, the good, and the beautiful. And with these mental health effects we're seeing, it's no wonder because serotonin helps us to not be as anxious. It decreases anxiety and depression and helps our sleep. And so when serotonin is being blocked in the brain by all this dopamine, it's going to increase depression, it increases anxiety, and it affects Sleep. And so these are some of the mental health effects that we're starting to see bear out over time from kids using social media. And the last thing I'll say is that the dopamine also over time results in neurological damage. The impact social media has on the brain most closely resembles age-related cognitive decline. So think about problems with memory or language, thinking and judgment that happens as you age in life, this is not happening to teenagers because of the sheer amount of dopamine is really harming the brain. And children are more vulnerable to these effects of social media because the prefrontal cortex, part of their brain, which is fully developed in adults, which helps us with our self-control, our impulse control, our emotional regulation, it's not fully developed in kids. So as adults, we're able to say, ooh, I was on Instagram for 30 minutes, I need to 
walk away, take a break, exercise some self-control, <laughs> re-engage with real people. Kids don't have that ability because they don't have their mature prefrontal cortex, and so they don't have that ability to step away themselves from using these apps. And then when you have the dopamine that's addicting, these things are really, like, synergizing to make it very hard for kids to, um, to not become addicted to these apps. And they also really affect these other mental health effects of a kid feeling isolated or depressed based on the things they're seeing on social media because while adults, if we see a bunch of friends doing something together on Instagram, we have an ability to rationalize our emotions and say, oh, well, there's probably a reason I wasn't included in this event. But teens don't have this fully developed capacity to reason or rationalize their emotional responses, and so they end up with heightened senses of loneliness, isolation, social anxiety from being on these apps. And so as I was starting to hint, the effect then of this addiction is that kids are increasingly experiencing drastic rates of depression and anxiety among teens. So depression, self-harm, and suicide all increased sharply among U.S. teens between 2011 and 2019, with similar trends worldwide. So it's not just the U.S. And the increase really occurred at the same time social media use moved from being optional to virtually like mandatory for teenagers. And so there are a few plausible alternative explanations for this sudden deterioration in teen mental health. And we, see, we saw the rates of teen depression increase by more than 60% from 2011 to 2018, the largest increase being among young teenage girls. And then between 2009 and 2015, emergency room admissions for self-harm injuries among 10 to 14-year-old girls. So these aren't even real teens. These are tweens. Tripled. And suicides have substantially increased. So these are, this is just the data is just bearing out that overall among the teen and tween populations, we're seeing huge spikes that were pretty you know, normal over time, all of a sudden spiking and increasing at huge percentages right around the time that social media um, took off. And so um, that, those are kind of some of the larger mental health effects that we're seeing. And then the other thing I would point out is that for teenage girls in particular, there's been a huge increase in body image and eating disorders. And so Facebook's own research found that 32% of teen girls said when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. And they said, we made body image issues worse for one in three teen girls. And this is their own internal research. So again, the companies are aware of these things. And this kind of infinite social comparison that social media promotes leads to a lot of body dissatisfaction among girls who are constantly comparing themselves to models, actresses, celebrities, but also to their friends, perfectly filtered photos who all look better online than in real life. And so by design, the apps are asking girls and teens to snap this kind of artifact of this alternate universe <laughs> version of yourself that you then project out to everyone to make a judgment on you. And that is just incredibly... It's just incredibly detrimental thing for children to do, to project themselves out to the world for judgment. And lastly, social media is crippling kids' capacity for learning and deep work. So we're talking about that dopamine, their brains being rewired for these shallow rewards. Teens are more distracted than ever. One study found teens could manage a mere six minutes of studying before indulging the compulsive need to pick up their smartphone and reconnect with social media, see who had just liked their photo. And so my point is, with all of these mental health harms um, and the brain science that we're starting to understand, time limits, I think, is the kind of 
thing parents are quick to turn to. They recognize, okay, this isn't good for my kid to be on their screen all day, so we'll just install time limits. The point I want to drive home, though, is that time limits aren't really going to cut it in protecting kids from a lot of these mental health harms. And this is because a dose-response model is not accurate when it comes to measuring the effects of social media. And by that, I mean we think of, parents might think of treating social media like sugar. You're like, okay, well, I don't want my kid to have too much sugar in one day. And so similarly, like, well, we just will limit the amount of social media use each day. The problem is that social media isn't sugar. It doesn't, it's not like, oh, after three hours, these mental health harms really kick in. The studies that I've um, read have shown that social media actually follows what they call like a network effect. So it changes just the entire social environment of being a teen today. And just that child, by nature of having a social media account, even if they were only to spend 20 minutes on it a day, even the time that they're not on the account, their brain is being consumed with these kind of hours of obsessive worry or anxiety of like, who's liking my post? So even when they're not on the app, it is affecting them by this network effect of the entire dynamic then that they're living in and the way that they're interacting with their peers. So just by the mere existence of a social media account, it's causing social anxiety, comparison, depression, and obsessive worry for kids, even if they're not on it for, you know, very long each day. And so an example that we, we just learned about yesterday, just from some conversations we were having, was there was this school in Austin where all the parents decided to make a pact in sixth grade we're not going to let our kids get smartphones and social media till eighth grade. And the sad thing was no one made it. Like, I was like so excited when I heard this example. I was like, this is what we need. Parents band together, make a pact, because they're trying to mitigate this social network effect, which is that if everyone's on it, it's really hard for your kid to not be on it. So they banded together. But so we were kind of, Caleb and I were talking about this last night. We're like, how did they not make it? Like, they all made this pact, and it was even just till eighth grade that they weren't going to let their kids get on these things, and then no one made it. And I think part of that is this, this kind of tipping point effect. It's kind of like once it feels like enough people in your social group have given in to the kind of pressure that your kids are feeling to get on social media, then it just becomes really hard to say no. And so I just want to acknowledge that, that this what we're, what we're going to be encouraging you all in today is not easy. And Caleb explained that at the beginning. Like, this is really hard. And it's harder by the fact that it's just the social environment our kids are in. Um, that even if you're making the individual choice and battles to keep them off, that their friends being on it, the peer pressure, the whole social dynamic changes makes this very difficult. And so um, that is actually my, my main job is to advocate for public policy solutions to try to make those individual choices and, um, and kind of battles for parents easier by trying to have a more collective solution. And so I, I just wanted to say that to just make you all aware that there is this network effect that um, social media doesn't work like sugar. It's not like after a certain amount it becomes harmful. Just by having an account, your kids can be experiencing these kind of um, the mental health effects. And even if your child's not on it, um, that's another thing I've heard from parents. Like, well, I didn't let my kid on it, but they still then feel isolated from their friends because they're not on it. And so these are there's not like an easy solution. <laughs> um, and in our talk on practical strategies, we'll still kind of encourage the kind of guidance that we have, even, even knowing that there's some of these network effects will still be operating in some ways. But just to say that um, 
this stuff is really dangerous, and, and as parents, we just need to be aware of that. Okay, my second main point is that, so that's the kind of the design. The whole design of the app, the way they affect kids' brains, is just harmful in itself, and those mental health effects are bearing out. But the second thing is that the apps are increasingly filled with content that is harmful to kids. Inappropriate content, dangerous voices, bad actors. And the reality is the social media companies are not removing content that's harmful to kids. They simply aren't incentivized to do so in our current legal regime. The most kind of sensational, inappropriate, extreme content, like pornography, which Caleb will address later, it keeps people coming back to the app for more. And so if these are for-profit companies, why would they remove the type of content that really preys on our weaknesses as humans? The flesh is drawn towards these inappropriate things. And sadly, um, that keeps people hooked on their platforms for longer. And so they're not gonna actively try to remove that. Um, and so the, the kind of sad reality is that, you know, TikTok, TikTok and Instagram have been shown to promote dangerous eating disorder content for girls, extreme diets, um, you know, these kind of health and fitness influencers can quickly lead little girls down rabbit holes of this dangerous eating disorder content. And so we're seeing a rise in eating disorder cases across the country. In fact, a recent lawsuit was filed on behalf of this 19-year-old girl. You may have seen it in the news. Her name is Alexis Spence. She created her Instagram account when she was 11 years old. So that's below the age that she was supposed to be on without her parents' consent. And she, in the lawsuit, is now alleging that Instagram's algorithm steered this then fifth grader to accounts that were glorifying anorexia and self-cutting. And the site had pushed extreme weight loss content and bulimic purging instructions on her. And it started recommending pages featuring emaciated young women and models. And those pages then led her to the terms Anna and pro-Anna, short for anorexia, in hashtags that recommended she friend people with eating disorders. And so you can see that really quickly, kids through these algorithms can get sucked down dangerous rabbit holes. They may have just started with her liking a page of a celebrity or an actress or saying, oh, well, that like, looks like a good diet or something that's a little bit more neutral on the surface can quickly go down these rabbit holes and promoting other things for these kids to follow. TikTok has also been shown to promote inappropriate drug-related content to minors. The New York Times even reported last year how suicide is being promoted online. So those are more extreme examples, um, but there's other strange content. Um, things like these challenges being promoted, like blackout challenges. Um, like a 10-year-old girl came across one on Instagram and she sadly tried it and she died and the parents actually just filed a lawsuit. Um, and so there, and then also, um, teens are starting to self-diagnose themselves with various mental illnesses. The Wall Street Journal had a report on this because they're following online accounts promoting these mental health diagnoses. Girls are also developing physical tics just from watching videos of other kids with physical tics on TikTok. And so by watching them over time, they're developing tics themselves. So there's truly bizarre stuff down, stuff out there online, and they're not taking this down, and it's having these effects on our kids. And so the last kind of area of this harmful content that I want to address um, is pretty heavy, and this is related to the, the kind of online porn epidemic, and Caleb will be unpacking this more, but... Recently, more and more evidence is coming out about how TikTok and its algorithms 
send teens down these rabbit holes of sexual-related content. One minor's account was bombarded with marketing for strip clubs. They were promoted paid pornography and videos pushing the user toward OnlyFans.com, a platform that is used for adult content and is favored by sex traffickers with explicit sex and prostitution ads. This was all reported by the New York Post. Um, another minor was lured into a TikTok space called Kink Talk, featuring torture devices, chains, and whips. And I just want to say, I should have said this at the outset, some of the things that we're going to be describing today are really heavy. And the reason that I want to explain them and use the exact language in some of these reports is to just make you aware as parents that this is actually the sad reality of the things that kids are seeing online today. And so it is a sobering topic. Um, and I, I just want to acknowledge that some of these things are really heavy. So that is the kind of nature of the content being pushed. And Caleb will explain this more in his talk, but the kind of online pornographic content online today is increasingly not hidden in the dark web. It's on social media sites. It's on places like YouTube and Instagram and TikTok. And so it's not just more pervasive, but it's also become more extreme and perverse in kind than it was even a few years ago. And so as I said, the social media apps are often then the first entry point directing kids on to some of these pornographic websites. Um, we know Twitter is full of porn and the executives are well informed of the issue and doing little to remove it. As I just mentioned, TikTok has this symbiotic relationship with OnlyFans, which is an adult website. And so they know that TikTok's algorithm promotes OnlyFans content on TikTok, as well as then fueling young girls on TikTok to then go and create OnlyFans accounts. And a Forbes review found that even within TikTok, the live streams, viewers regularly use the comments to urge young girls then to perform acts that appear to toe the line of child pornography. And they reward these young girls then who oblige with TikTok gifts, which can be redeemed for money or off-platform payments like Venmo. And so an, a, an assistant dean at Harvard Law said, it's the digital equivalent of going down the street to a strip club, strip club filled with 15-year-olds. Like that is what these TikTok live spaces has become. So I'll just say TikTok is by far the worst app, if you're not already picking up on this, <laughs> when it comes to incentivizing this inappropriate behavior by kids online. And so um, just know that some apps are definitely far worse than others. And so TikTok would fall into that category of certainly being the most full of this sexual and inappropriate content. But even things that are neutral, like Spotify, um, is now been found to be full of porn. Even though they're trying to keep it off their site, people are using different hashes and parentheses and commas and periods at the end of links to put pornographic content onto Spotify. Um, and so that is the kind of most extreme type of content kids would come across is, is some of the more sexual related content. And just a teen counselor uh, just shared an anecdote with me that kind of drew this point home. And I, I asked her, I said, well, how are kids first coming across this inappropriate content online? Like, how are they first being exposed to pornography? And she said, the minute that a kid gets a smartphone, they are going to come across it. And so 
just knowing that the ease now of smartphones to access social media, the internet, it is just extremely easy for kids to come across this stuff. And like even YouTube, which you, you know, kids love to watch all these goofy videos on YouTube, is a really easy place now to encounter pornography and then to be led down rabbit holes the way that these apps auto-generate the next video can quickly lead kids down a bad rabbit trail. Um, I'm going to pause there for a minute only because I feel like I've given you all a lot of content. Does anyone have any quick questions? And I'll keep moving. I have a couple last points, but a lot of this is really heavy and it's a lot of data, a lot of brain science. So um, I just want to pause for a minute just to see if anything I said, if anyone had a clarifying question and we'll have more time for Q&A, but this is just like, oh wait, you said something about dopamine. I didn't quite get that. So I just, I don't want to keep plowing forward if anyone had anything that they weren't sure about. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, this is really recent. Um, I think the article was in the New York Post. They, and again, it's users are uploading this stuff and Spotify is not trying to have this on there. But the reality with a lot of these social media apps is because so much of the content is created by users and uploaded by users that they can really easily just put pornographic content up there. And so people found a workaround. And again, it was like something weird, like they would use like periods or like um, parentheses or like hash signs in like the links that they were using. And somehow that was like avoiding these kind of Spotify detection. So they were able to upload pornography. Um, and it was really easy then for kids to access. So it's just, I think the reality of the kind of user-generated apps is that porn can be everywhere or just in general inappropriate content. And kind of my point was just that the social media apps, I mean, some might be trying to police it, but the sheer volume is going to be overwhelming. And then others are really just not trying to police it that much because they're like, well, users kind of like this content, keeps people coming back for more. We get to sell more ads. So we're just really not going to try that hard to take this down. Um, all right, I'll, I'll keep going with my last couple points and then I can pause for more questions at the end. So related to the porn epidemic though, and one of the more troubling trends kind of associated with the ubiquitous, you know, smartphone devices that everybody has is the increased amount of sexting. And I'm sure some of you are aware of this, but sexting is when people send sexually explicit or somewhat revealing pictures or texts. And the statistics on this trend have become quite devastating. Two out of every three girls ages 12 to 18 have been asked to take and share a nude image. Um, this report called The Porn Phenomenon found that among teens and young adults, sexting and sharing explicit images through social media apps, especially ones like Snapchat and Instagram, have become commonplace. And this has been reported by a more systematic review from JMA Pediatrics published in 2018 that pulled from 39 different studies between the ages of 12 and 17. They found the prevalence of having sent a sext to be roughly 18% or one in 17. And they also discovered the prevalence of having received a sext to be 28% or more than one in four teens. And then when you narrow it down from the general teen population to specifically teens who might be actively seeking out pornography, that number rises significantly. So they say that Barna has found that 24% of teens who are actively seeking out pornography say they have sent nude images and 44% have received them. So 
and again, anecdotally, in talking to a friend who's a counselor for a Christian high school, so this is a Christian high school, she said, oh, requesting pictures is very normal. It is like the air they breathe. The lingo they use is, oh, I gave them pictures. Or we were at a place in our relationship where I sent pictures. And the reality is these pictures can be forever on the interwebs. And you can never take it back. And the other thing is that often you might say, okay, I'll send this picture to my boyfriend, and that picture can go anywhere. I mean, it can get shared among all the kids in the school, uploaded to a pornographic website, and so you've probably heard of this phenomenon called revenge porn, where then people are finding a picture of themselves that they sent to one person on four different porn websites, and they're just not even able to, to get it taken down. And so the sexting trend is really dangerous. Um, and we were even talking to a friend last night who has a friend who works with Young Life um, in the Austin area. And these high school boys were just saying, well, why would I even need to really go access a, a, a porn site? I can just get pictures really from any of the people in my school, like any of the girls. Or again, if one guy gets a photo, it gets shared with everyone. And so this is, this is even more of a disturbing reality related to the smartphones is that kids are just able to take and send pornographic images to each other. Um, and then with apps like Snapchat, the, the photo is not even necessarily saved on the phone. So a parent might go onto the phone and they don't see anything, but it's, it's gone through Snapchat to the interweb. So um, this is just a, a really increasing trend that parents need to be aware of. Um, and um, pivoting from kind of the sexual content, so the porn and sexting, the last kind of realm of things to be aware of with, when it comes to social media is just the kind of outside voices and influencers that are mentioned. So people who don't know your child. And the thing is that social media feeds are increasingly being filled and having content being promoted by the algorithms from complete strangers. And often these are adults. And so this online world is really supplanting the kind of wisdom of parents and instruction from God's word with these kind of echo chambers of teens with limited perspectives or the enticements of older adult influencers to follow and join their very worldly way of life. And so the most nefarious example of this is the kind of rise of the transgender influencers. So LGBT activists have really taken to this online world of social media to recruit more followers, specifically seeking out young people who we know are vulnerable and impressionable to join their cause and become their allies. And I think part of the kind of disturbing trend of this transgender movement among teens is in large part being driven by social media by these sites where these influencers can peddle misinformation on the drugs and surgeries of the trans world and actually actively coach teens how to lie to doctors and their parents in order to get access to these hormone treatments or surgeries. And they're really trying to just convince them of the validity and normalcy of their sexually perverted lifestyle. So they send messages to youth like, if you feel uncomfortable in your body or you feel like you don't belong, if you just transition your gender, it will solve all your problems. And what young teenagers, I think like we've all been teenagers, in the throes of navigating these hard peer dynamics and puberty changes and all the kind of pressures of school, you feel comfortable in your body and confident in who you are. I feel like teens are very insecure, and so especially teenage girls, and so they're really ripe for recruiting to the trans cause, and we're seeing that effect um, by these activists on social media trying to reach out to these 
these teens, especially girls, to tell them that because they feel uncomfortable in their body, if they just transition their gender, it will solve all their problems. And they're really trying to actively undermine parents, um, you know, saying like, I will send you a binder to your friend's address so your parents, you know, won't know about it. And they offer kind of outright medical falsehoods, like these t testosterone won't have any long-term effects. In fact, trying it out is a really good way to figure out whether you're transgender or not. They glorify their own transitions, like enthusing and showing themselves after having a double mastectomy or also referring to skeptical parents as toxic and encouraging their audience to upgrade from your real family to a trans glitter family who will really accept you for who you are. And so if you, I mean, you don't want to see this content, but you can look at, there's a, or a Twitter account called the libs of TikTok that just posts these kind of videos that are just all over TikTok of these trans influencers. Lastly, two quick things. There, the latest kind of threat that is emerging that we should all be aware of and keep our eyes on. So I feel like social media is kind of like the main current threat. But the next kind of wave that I see coming is this virtual world. So I think you're all starting to hear about the metaverse and these virtual chat apps and gaming platforms. So there's like a gaming platform called Roblox. It's rated suitable for children as young as seven. Is increasingly making headlines for allowing virtual sex parties with strippers. Or another virtual chat app called VR Chat has allowed minors to virtually go into strip clubs and see simulated sex. And so the next kind of level of threat is not just them accessing pornographic images on social media, but it's being able to virtually engage in some of this behavior through these virtual gaming and chat apps. And so this is really the next kind of danger that's coming and um, that we should all be aware of. Um, with that, I will just say, like in conclusion, um, uh, all, all of these dangers are, are really heavy, and I know I covered a lot of ground, mainly because I wanted to give you just the breadth of the threats that are out there. Um, but just to reiterate, my main points are just that the social media companies are not neutral. They're actively trying to addict our kids to profit off of them, so they don't have our kids' best interest at heart. And so they're not removing content that's really inappropriate for children, but allowing that to proliferate, making it really easy for kids to stumble across some pretty horrific things, um, particularly related to pornographic and sexual content. And so screen time limits and um, kind of limiting the amount of of time that your child spends on social media really isn't going to counter all these effects since even a small amount of time on the wrong app or encountering the wrong content can be extremely damaging as well as just the fact that the, the network effects can drive these kind of hours of obsessive worry even when they're not actively on the apps. So with that, I will pass it off to Caleb and if anyone has a brief question, I can take that now or we can also save it for the Q&A time.